Uh, this is the first day of the September 2023 two-day session. And for the next two days, we'll be reading from Mindfulness in Plain English. That's the title, and it's by Bhante Gunaratana. And actually, Bhante means, uh, it's a title, it basically means uh, Venerable One uh, for monks and nuns uh, in the Theravadan tradition. So Bhante Gunaratana, uh, I was going to mention, give a little bio, so we just give a feel who this person is. And I just found out he is 95 years old and still alive um, as I speak. So Bhante Hennapola Gunaratana was ordained at the age of 12 as a Buddhist monk in Malandaniya, Sri Lanka. And then in 1947, at age 20, he was given higher ordination in Kandy. Kandy, K-A-N-D-Y. That's in Sri Lanka as well, some administrative city. Uh, subsequently, he traveled to India for five years of missionary work for the Mahabodhi Society, serving the Harijana, which means untouchable, serving the untouchable people in Sanchi, Delhi, and Bombay. And then later he spent 10 years as a missionary in Malaysia. And then at the invitation of the Sansana Savaka Society, he came to the United States in 1968 to serve as general secretary of the Buddhist Vihara Society of Washington, D.C. Uh, I was looking him up a little bit, and uh, one of the interesting uh, work that he did was actually at the end of the Vietnam War, uh, some military official in the U.S. asked him to uh, help, uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of Vietnamese refugees that came to this country. And so for a short period of time, he like was teaching them English, and he was also ensuring that uh, families were not separated uh, when uh, and helping them find new homes in, in the U.S., in 1980, he was appointed president of the society, and during his years at the Vihara from 68 to 88, he taught courses in Buddhism, conducted meditation retreats, and lived widely throughout the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, and Asia. Uh, he also pursued scholarly interests by earning a PhD in a philosophy from American University, uh, he has taught courses on Buddhism at American University, Georgetown University, and U of Maryland. All right, since 1982, Bhante Gunaratana has been president of the Bhavana Society, a monastery and retreat center located in the woods of West Virginia uh, near the Shenandoah Valley, which he co-founded with Matthew Flickstein. Uh, Bhante Gunaratana resides at the Bahava, excuse me, Bahava, Bhavana Society, where he ordains and trains monks and nuns and offers retreats to the general public. He also travels frequently to lecture and lead retreats throughout the world. Although I don't know about that now at the age of 95. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, and we'll go into the first chapter. Chapter 1, Meditation, Why Bother? Or how about, Why Bother? Meditation is not easy. 
It takes time and it takes energy. It also takes grit, determination, and discipline. Of course, and then the ultimate for that is what we're doing right now, doing this two-day sashin. It requires a host of personal qualities that we normally regard as unpleasant and like to avoid whenever possible. We can sum up all these qualities in the American word gumption. Meditation. It is certainly a great deal easier just to sit back and watch television. So why bother? Why waste all the time and energy when you could be out enjoying yourself? Why? Simple. Because you are a human. Just because of the simple fact that you are human, you find yourself heir to an inherent unsatisfactoriness in life that simply will not go away. You can suppress it from your awareness for time. You can distract yourself for hours on end, but it always comes back and usually when you least expect it. All of a sudden, seeming out of the blue, you sit back, take stock, and realize your actual situation in life. Uh, just, you know, I was rereading this, and um, I don't know, I was had mixed feelings about reading this first chapter, just because some of it's just going to sound like I'm just preaching to the choir, but uh, there's some good stuff in it anyway, and so I thought, even though it might sound um, a little redundant, uh, yeah, I've been there, done that, I realize this, this is why I'm meditating, this is why I'm going to Sashin, because, uh, you know, not everybody does Sashin who practices Zen at, at, the center, at our center. Um, and that's fine. Um, but there's just so much to get out of Sashin. Uh, I just had this thought earlier, uh, this analogy of, you know, setting, setting every day. Yeah, we're getting our feet wet. We're getting our trunk wet. We're starting to enter uh, deeper into the waters of Sashin, uh, of, excuse me, of practice itself. But really, uh, even a two-day sashin, uh, we're starting to really wade deep. We're starting to get really underneath what's really going on. Uh, and, and, and bit by bit, starting to uh, drop expectations, drop any ideas, uh, seeing what's there, putting a light on ourselves and seeing what's really going on. And um, yes, so let's continue. There you are, and you suddenly realize that you are spending your whole life just barely getting by. You keep up a good front. You manage to make ends meet somehow and look okay from the outside, but those periods of desperation, those times when you feel everything caving in on you, you keep those to yourself. You are a mess, and you know it, but you hide it beautifully. Meanwhile, way down under all of that, you just know that there has to be some other way to live, a better way to look at the world, a way to touch life more fully. You click into it by chance now and then. You get a good job. You fall in love. You win the game. For a while, things are different. Life takes on a richness and clarity that makes all the bad times and humdrum fade away. The whole texture of your experiences changes, and you say to yourself, Okay, now I've made it. Now I will be happy. But then that fades too, like smoke in the wind. You are left with just a memory, that and a vague awareness that something is wrong. (laughs) 
you feel that there really is a whole other realm of depth and sensitivity available in life. Somehow, somehow, somehow you're just not seeing it. You wind up feeling cut off. You feel insulated from the sweetness of experience by some sort of sensory cotton. You're not really touching life. You're not, quote, making it again. Then even that vague awareness fades away and you're back to the same old reality. The world looks at you in a foul place. It is an emotional roller coaster and you spend a lot of your time down at the bottom of the ramp, yearning for the heights. I can't help but think of people who, uh, and this is probably coming from someone who's not exercising much these days. I want to get back on that treadmill, but it does remind me this uh, yearning for the heights. You know, it reminds me of, of people who just exercise so much, you know, because they just want to get that high over and over again when perhaps that's not the best thing for them. But we all have to find our own middle way when it comes to these things. So what is wrong with you? Are you a freak? No. You're just human. And you suffer from the same malady that infects every human being. It is a monster inside all of us, and it has many arms. Chronic tension, lack of genuine compassion for others, including the people closest to you, blocked up feelings and emotional deadness. Many, many arms. None of us is entirely free from it. We may deny it, we try to suppress it, we build a whole culture about hiding from it, pretending it is not there, and distracting ourselves with goals, projects, and concerns about status. Just getting busy. Always the busyness. But it never goes away. It is a, little, it is a constant undercurrent of every thought and every perception Excuse me. It is a constant undercurrent in every thought and every perception, a little voice in the back of the mind that keeps saying, not good enough yet, need to have more, have to make it better, have to be better. It is a monster, a monster that matters everywhere in subtle forms. I'm reminded of this uh, New Yorker cartoon I just saw. You know, it's just this one panel window. Imagine one panel, a comic, just imagine uh, Times Square just full of tourists and residents and people with their selfies and their phones and, and all those big, huge billboards, except uh, what's written in those billboards, all those numberless signs in Times Square, instead of the actual ad, uh, it just has the wor these words like, you're too fat, you're hungry. Another one says, you're ugly. Another one says, you're horny, uh, you are dumb, spend more money, you're still ugly. It just goes on and on, these signs. <laughs> but that's basically the bottom line when it comes to, to our society and, and advertisement is just making us feel inadequate, like we need something else to satisfy ourselves. And all we really need to do is, all we really need to do is to sheen, uh, do the practice, do the daily practice. Do Zazen. Life seems to be a perpetual struggle, an enormous effort against staggering odds. And what is our solution to all this dissatisfaction? We get stuck in the, quote, if only syndrome. If only I had more money, 
then I would be happy. If only I could find somebody who really loved me. If only I could lose 20 pounds. If only I had a color TV, a hot tub, curly hair, and so on and so forth. Where does this, all this junk come from? And more important, what can we do about it? It comes from the conditions of our own minds. It is a deep, subtle, and pervasive, pervasive set of mental a Gordian knot that we have tied bit by bit and that we can only unravel in just that same way, one piece of a ta- at a time. Yes, one piece of it at a time. It takes time. We can tune up our awareness, dredge up each separate piece, and bring it out into the light. We can make the unconscious conscious slowly, one piece at a time. This bringing it out into the light, really, that's all we need to do. It comes out into the light, whatever, um, whatever defilements we experience, uh, no, excuse me, whatever defilements we see, we experience, what, Whatever it is, whether it's jealousy or rage or um, name, your, name your defilement, things that come popping up in the mind in the middle of the zazen, that's, the zazen's working. You're bringing it out into the light. And what do we do with that? Nothing. Don't do anything with that. You see it and you just get back to the practice. It's by seeing it, by noticing it. I'm still, con- I'm still surprised about um, the things that will pop up in the mind, but they just don't affect one as much as they used to through uh, long years of practice. But initially, when they do pop up, especially for newcomers, when they start seeing these things, uh, at least for me, it was a total freak-out session. I just could not believe what was going on in the mind. Uh, I still remember, I'll relay this story. It was, I think it was my first two days Sashin, and it was with uh, Sanya Roshi, now Sanya Roshi, Zen teacher in Asheville. And I just went into private instruction, or no, I went into Doksan, and uh, I just said, oh my, I'm just so full of myself. And uh, she just looked at me, and I realize now that that look was, yeah, I've heard that before. Like, it's just, you're run-of-the-mill. I'm so full of myself. And, uh, but that, you know, as, as we mature as practitioners, as we see these defilements, as we go through the process of um, just digging up all that muck and by, yeah, by shining light on it, uh, it, it really is actually quite a humbling experience when we start to really see what's going on uh, and uh, get through it. Just purely get through it. Just getting back on that mat. The essence of our experience is change. Change is incessant. Moment by moment, life flows by and it is never the same. Perpetual fluctuation is the essence of the perceptual universe. A thought springs up in your head, and half a second later, it is gone. In comes another one, and then that is gone too. A sound strikes your ears, and then silence. Open your eyes, and the world pours in. Blink, and it is gone. People come into your life and go. Friends leave, relatives die. Your fortunes go up, and they go down. 
Sometimes you win, and just as often you lose. It is incessant. Change, change, change. No two moments ever the same. There is not a thing wrong with this. It is the nature of the universe. But human culture has taught us some odd responses to this endless flowing. We rise experiences. We try to stick each perception, every mental change in this endless flow into one of three mental pigeonholes. It's good, it's bad, or neutral. Then according to which box we tick it in, we perceive with a set of fixed habitual mental responses. If a particular per- perception has been labeled good, then we try to freeze time right now, right there. We grab onto that particular thought, fondle it, hold it, and we try to keep it from escaping. When that does not work, we go all out in an effort to repeat the experience that caused the thought. Let us call this mental habit grasping. Over on the other side of the mind lies a box labeled bad. When we perceive something bad, we try to push it away. We try to deny it, reject it, and get rid of it any way we can. We fight against our own experience. We run from pieces of ourselves. Let us call this mental habit rejecting. Grasping on one side, rejecting on the other. Between these two reactions lies the neutral box. Here we place the experiences that are neither good nor bad. They are tepid, neutral, uninteresting. We pack experience away in the neutral box so that we can ignore it and thus return our attention to where the action is, namely our endless round of desire and aversion. So this neutral category of experience gets robbed of its fair share of our attention. Let us call this mental habit ignoring can't help but think of just as just our nature to avoid people we don't like and cling on to people that we do like spend as much time as we want them say if we're a very social person and then just i guess neutral would be just (laughs) avoiding people you find boring um and it's that's just not the case if you're just paying attention if you're just really listening and paying attention to whoever you're speaking with uh there's a richness there that just unfolds, that, that it's there. It doesn't unfold, it's right there. But it's just by paying attention. Again, I remember one of my early years of practice, uh, I was just having a, a conversation with, with the kid, and this was brunch after Sunday, and it, things just dropped, and I was just totally engaged in listening to what uh, the absurd dialogue this kid was having with me. Well, that's fun in itself, just hearing that. But, but there was just something to the fact that I just had a really, I guess I had a really good sitting Sunday morning, and there, there I am speaking with a seven-year-old. Oh, oh, okay, here we go. Actually, he has an answer for this neutral category. So this, quote, neutral category of experience gets robbed of its fair share of our attention. Let us call this mental habit ignoring. The direct result of all this lunacy is a perpetual treadmill race to nowhere, endlessly pounding after pleasure, 
endlessly fleeing from pain and endlessly ignoring 90% of our experience. Then we wonder why life tastes so flat. In the final analysis, this system does not work. No matter how hard you pursue pleasure and success, there are times when you fail. No matter how fast you flee, there are times pain catches up with you. And in between those times, life is so boring you could scream. Our minds are full of opinions and criticisms. We have built walls all around ourselves and are trapped in the prison of our own likes and dislikes. We suffer. Suffering. Suffering is a big word in Buddhist thought. It is the key term and should be thoroughly understood. The Pali word in dukkha, and it does not mean the agony of the body. It means the deep, subtle sense of dissatisfaction that is a part of every mind moment and that results directly from the mental, mental treadmill. The essence of life is suffering, said the Buddha. At first glance, this statement seems exceedingly morbid and pessimistic. It even seems untrue. After all, there are plenty of times when we are happy, aren't there? No, there are not. It just seems that way. Take any moment when you feel really fulfilled and examine it closely. Down under the joy, you will find that subtle, all-pervasive undercurrent of tension that no matter how great this moment is, it is not going to end. It is, excuse me, <laughs> backtrack there. Down under the joy, you will find that subtle, all-pervasive undercurrent of tension that no matter how great this moment is, it is going to end. No matter how much you just gained, you are inevitably either going to lose some of it or spend the rest of your days guarding what you have and scheming how to get more. And in the end, you're going to die. In the end, you lose everything it's all transitory. Skipping along now. You can't ever get everything you want. It is impossible. Luckily, there is another option. You can learn to control your mind, to step outside of the endless cycle of desire and aversion. You can learn not to want, you can learn not to want what you want, to recognize desires, but not be controlled by them. This does not mean that you lie down on the road and invite everybody to walk all over you. It means that you continue to live a very normal-looking life, but live from a whole new viewpoint. You do the things that a person must do, but you are free from that obsessive, compulsive drivenness of your own desires. You want, some, you want something, but you don't need to chase after it. Just seeing it, putting a light onto it. You fear something, but you don't need to stand there quaking in your boots. This sort of mental cultivation is very difficult. It takes years. But trying to control everything is impossible. 
The difficult is preferable to the impossible. Meditation is called the capital G, great capital T teacher. It is the cleansing crucible fire that works slowly but surely through understanding. The greater your understanding, the more flexible and tolerant, the more compassionate you can be. You become like a perfect parent or an ideal teacher. You are ready to forgive and forget. You feel love toward others because you understand them and you understand others because you have understood yourself. So much of this practice, especially in longer retreats like all-day sittings or sashin, um, again, it's just putting a light onto our own defilements. And by seeing all the muck that's inside and by letting it go, by shining a light on it, um, it just, like I said, it just becomes this really humbling experience. And slowly but surely, we change. We change for the better. And we, we think less of ourselves and we think of the needs of others. And we know how to respond. You have looked deeply inside and seen, seen self-illusion in your own human failings, seen your own humanity, and learned to forgive and to love. When you have learned compassion for yourself, Compassion for others is automatic. I'm a mess. You're a mess. An accomplished meditator has achieved a profound understanding of life, and he or she inevitably relates to the world with a deep and uncritical love. Faith and morality, by the way, have a special meaning in this context. Buddhism does not advocate faith in the sense of believing something because it is written in a book, attributed to a prophet or taught to you by some authority figure. The meaning of faith here is closer to confidence. It is knowing that something is true because you have seen it work, because you have observed that very thing within yourself. That's the thing about Zen meditation, uh, at least in our school, you know, when we start, um, some people start and then stop, start and stop, and some people never start up again. Um, but really, it's just that perseverance of just doing it every day, trying it. I'm not very good at this practice, but I'm going to do it anything. I'm going to do it anyway. Again, I'm not very good at this practice, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's that perseverance um, that eventually the gap between the start and stop ends, and then we just keep doing it every day because we need to do it. Moving to another chapter.
Chapter 4. Attitude. Within the last century, Western science has made a startling discovery. We are part of the world we view. The very process of our observation changes the things we observe. For example, an electron is an extremely tiny item. It cannot be viewed without instrumentation, and that apparatus dictates that the observer will see. If you look at an electron in one particular way, it appears to be a particle, a hard little ball that bounces around in a nice straight path. When you view it another way, an electron appears to be a waveform, glowing and wiggling all over the place, with nothing solid about it at all. An electron is an event more than a thing, and the observer participates in that event by the very act of his or her observation. There is no way to avoid this interaction. Eastern science has recognized this basic principle for a very long time. The mind itself is a set of events, and you participate in those events every time you look inward. Meditation is participatory observation. What you are looking at responds to the process of looking. In this case, what you are looking at is you, and what you see depends on how you look. Thus, the process of meditation is extremely delicate, and the result depends absolutely on the state of mind of the meditator. The following attitudes are essential to success in practice. Most of them have already been presented, but we bring them together again here as a series of rules for applications. 1. Don't expect anything. Just sit back and see what happens. Well, in our case, we don't just sit back and see what happens. We do the practice see what happens with no expectations in the mind. Treat the whole thing as an experiment. Take an active interest in the test itself, but don't get distracted by your expectations about the results. For that matter, don't be anxious for any result whatsoever. Let the meditation move along at its own speed and in its own direction. Let the meditation teach you. Meditation awareness seeks to see reality exactly as it is, seeing things as they are. Whether that corresponds to our expectations or not, it does require a temporary suspension of all of our preconceptions and ideas. We must store our images, opinions, and interpretations out of the way for the duration of the this, this session. Otherwise, we will stumble over them. While we'll store our images, it's more like the images come up. Say if it is a macchio, they just come up. Don't pay any attention to them. Just return to the practice, and eventually they will, will disappear. I suppose that's what he means by storing our images, opinions, and interpretations. Two, don't strain. Don't force anything or make grand, exaggerated efforts. Meditation is not aggressive. There is no place or need for violent striving. Just let your effort be relaxed and steady. Relax and steady. 
this this I feel is such an important point for for uh, especially when we're in Sashin to relax the body. I can't tell you the machines uh, myself and others I've heard from others as well how much we just strained and strained wanting to get something and so wanting to get enlightenment wanting to get into samadhi we're just straining if you feel any tension in the body just relax the body uh here's a trick that i have i often tell people that i've learned recently is at the start of a round i'll roll one shoulder forward and back right side and then roll the shoulder forward and back the left shoulder it can help get the back straighter and it kind of encourages that pelvic tilt the belly is sticking out now my shoulders are nice and relaxed but yeah tension in body that's that comes from the striving no doubt don't rush this is the third point don't rush there is no hurry so take your time settle yourself on a cushion and sit as though you have the whole day <laughs> well which we do we have we do have the whole day anything really valuable takes time to develop patience 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 four don't cling to anything and don't reject anything Again, here we go again. It's really, that's what it comes down to with our practice. We're not grasping and we're not rejecting. We're not suppressing. So a thought comes up, it comes up. This return to the practice. Don't grasp onto it, some fantasy, and don't reject some, I don't know. Don't push away anything either. Again, Point four, don't cling to anything and don't reject anything. Let come what comes and accommodate yourself to that, whatever it is. If good mental images arise, that is fine. If bad mental images arise, that is fine too. Look on all of it as equal and make yourself comfortable with whatever happens. Don't fight with what you experience. Just observe it all. Five, let go. Learn to flow with all the changes that come up. Loosen up and relax. Six, accept everything that arises. Accept your feelings, even the ones you wish you did not have. Accept your experiences, even the ones you hate. Don't condemn yourself for having human flaws and failings. Learn to see all the phenomena in the mind as being perfectly natural and understandable. Try to exercise a disinterested acceptance of all times, at all times, with respect to everything you experience. So again, I'll just say that again. Try to exercise a disinterested acceptance at all times with respect to anything you, with everything you experience. For so long, I just felt detachment. The word detachment um, was a negative word when it came to Zen practice. But really, 
that's what we're doing. Uh, we're detaching ourselves. We're just observing, um, not coldly, but we're just observing coldly, uh, what's going on in our mind without reacting, without aversion, and without grasping. Just observing comes up, it goes away. It comes up, it goes away. Seven, <clears throat> be gentle with yourself. Be kind to yourself. You may not be perfect, but you are all you've got to work with. The process of becoming who you will be begins first with the total acceptance of who you are. Eight, Investigate yourself. Question everything. Take nothing for granted. Don't believe anything because it sounds wise and pious and some holy man said it. See for yourself. This, that does not mean that you should be cynical, impudent, or irreverent. It means you should be empirical. Subject all statements to the actual test of your own experience and let the results be your guide to truth. Zazen evolves out of an inner longing to wake up to what is real and to gain liberating insight into the true structure of existence. Of existence. The entire practice hinges upon this desire to, to be awake to the truth. Without it, the practice is superficial. Nine, view all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury, bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great. More grist for the mill. Rejoice, dive in, and investigate. There's a Chinese word for uh, it's this character, Wei Ji. And Wei means crisis, while Ji means opportunity. Don't ponder. You don't need to figure everything out. Discursive thinking won't free you from the trap. In meditation, the mind is purified naturally by Zazen, by wordless bare attention. Habitual deliberation is not necessary to eliminate those things that are keeping you in bondage. All that is necessary is a clear, non-conceptual perception of what they are and how they work. That alone is sufficient to solve them. Concepts and reasonings just get in the way. Don't think. See. Well, it feels like this is a good place to stop. Uh, so we'll stop now and recite the four vows.